Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And 2 Corinthians continues to be a challenging and also a very rewarding epistle. When it comes to ministry, when it comes to service, when it comes to just doing anything for the Lord, this is the epistle to go to. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 1 if we will. Would to God he could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. Please put up with what I'm about to ask of you. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So one more time, the Apostle Paul is addressing two groups of people in Corinth. One group had been tossed to and fro. One group thought that the Apostle Paul was a faker, was a charlatan, was a false apostle with no authority and were seriously questioning everything that they'd ever been led to believe and the other group were sticking with him like closer than a brother i am jealous verse two over you with godly jealousy for i have espoused you i have presented you you are betrothed you are engaged to one husband that i may present you as a chaste virgin to christ So he uses a marriage analogy to describe the body of Christ's relationship to the Lord. And when you get saved, not only are you saved, obviously, not only have you been exonerated, not only have you been declared not guilty, not only have you been adopted into the family of God, but one day a marriage supper will take place. And one day the body of Christ as a living organism will be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the great fear that the apostle had was that there could be saved people back in Corinth and today that may stray into idolatry, may get caught up in false religions, may have a pernicious view of the Son of God. But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve to his subtlety, So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So the Bible says how the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's a heart problem. But here the statement has been made about one's mind. I fear lest by any means as a serpent, the devil beguiled Eve through his subtlety, like putting doubts into a mind. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's kid stuff. When it comes to how to be saved. Like 1, 2, 3. Like ABC. And yet saying that. Allow me to say this. We've just finished our most ambitious. Autumn outreach. Probably ever. 10 days in Bristol. 10 days around the west coast of England. And we were able to go to places like Bath. Glastonbury. Cardiff. And of course Bristol. We gave out thousands of tracks, many DVDs, like dozens of DVDs. Our banner was seen by tens of thousands. Many great conversations, a good number, have been filmed and will be uploaded in the coming days and weeks. And yet, to the best of my recollection, as I stand here this morning, I can only think of one man that I personally spoke to, second to last day, who was on our page, theologically. One person, and this one person was discussing with me his feelings about the body of Christ and the state of the churches in Bristol. 
And he spoke about a church that he had a run in with and he had a altercation with their pastor. And he started to describe the man to me. And I said to this guy, I made it myself. This past Saturday, I spent 25 minutes discussing the gospel with him. And this guy said to me that he's been on the streets of Bristol for 15 years preaching with his group. And he said, and I said to him, well, I've been saved 15 years and I too have been on the streets for 15 years. And yet we couldn't find any middle ground when it comes to how to be saved. And to cut a long story short, he asked me to pray with him for clarification. And I said, no, thank you. I don't need to pray for clarification. I know perfectly well what the gospel is. I haven't lost the simplicity of Christ. I know that mankind cannot give God anything to be saved. It's only after you are saved does he want you to give him your heart, your life, your body. But before you are saved, you have nothing, I mean nothing, to offer the Lord. So I look at verse 2, I look at verse 3. And I see Paul very mindful that there are at least two groups within Corinth. And like I say, one group doesn't know if they are coming or going. Doesn't really know if Paul is the real deal. And the other group is very much on Paul's side. Very much on script, if you will. Don't uh, particularly need reassurance. And yet Paul needs to deal with the real risk of people being deceived and losing the simplicity of Christ due to their minds being corrupted. Look at verse 4 please. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Number one, another Jesus. Number two, another spirit. Number three, another gospel. So you think of another Jesus, like what the Quran speaks about. You think about another Jesus, like the Jehovah's Witnesses offer, or the Mormons, or the Christian scientists. I mean, many Jesuses out there, many Christs out there. We met some Gnostics in Bristol, very confused people. And again, such conversations are on uh, video, on camera, which you can watch in the days and weeks to come. Another spirit, you think of the charismatic movement, like slain in the spirit, like rolling around on the floor, like barking, like a wild animal. And yet when I think of people falling down in scripture, I think of the enemies of the Lord. John chapter 18, that along with Judas Iscariot were en route to arrest the Savior. And he would say to them, whom do you seek? And they would say, Jesus. And he would say, I am. That's his eternal name. And they all fell backwards. And quite possibly Judas too. And they got back up on their feet. And you would have thought that would have put the wind up them. Perhaps the fear of God into them. And they continued on route to arrest him. And he would say, who do you seek? Who do you want? And they would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he would say, I am he, take me. Now, several things could be said. Number one. If you think about the account back in Genesis, when the Sodomites are trying to get close and personal with Lot's visitors, and the angels hit them with blindness, and they too continued to push on. They didn't turn around and run off. I mean, if I was struck down with blindness, I'd be terrified. But they were in the flesh, desperate to meet these angels, these men, and rape them. And 
like I say, they were blind, and yet it says they were desperately trying to open the door, trying to find the handle. No deterrent. No winner. Difficult situation here. Something has happened to us. We better retreat. And you would have thought with the enemies of the Lord that were trying to arrest them, they too would have said to themselves, what's going on here? This massive power, this massive force has knocked us flat on our backs. And you can be sure that they were down for a few seconds. And yet when Paul met the Lord, he went flat on his face. And of course, that would result in his salvation. You think of another gospel like Roman Catholicism, a faith and works package. And on top of that, the need to confess your sins to a man in a box. Pray to Mary. Pray to the saints. Pray to dead people. The terror of this whole subject is quite simply this, that if you're saved or unsaved, there's every chance that you too could receive another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And of course, if you are saved, you'll be shipwrecked. And if you're not saved, you go to hell forever. For he that cometh preacheth another Jesus. Verse 4, whom we have not preached like the apostles, like the real men, disciples of the Lord. Or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, the Bible says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Or another gospel, going back to the gospel of the church of Rome, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. This could happen to anyone at any time in any place. Over 10 days of traveling around the west of England, and we believe we've traveled probably 700 miles, only one person came up to us, like I say, in Bristol and was on our page. I know that other members of the group had their own conversations and perhaps they will speak about their conversations or write up their conversations. I'm not saying that there weren't people that were on our page, but if that were the case, they didn't come over and speak to us. Also, please allow me to say this. I've read some of the comments on our first uh, street preach and people are saying, praise the Lord, good to see you guys out there, blah, blah, blah. But it's a great shame that people aren't stopping to talk or they're not stopping to listen. Please allow me to say one thing and I'll move on. That what you don't see on camera is what I see. When I street preach, I'm wearing a particular camera around my chest, which films like a fisheye lens. I'm not mad about that, but it's the way that this camera has been designed. And it gives the appearance that people are miles away, but they're not. And I can tell you that during my preaching in Bristol City Centre, there were many people listening, which unfortunately you don't see on camera. And there was one chap that was listening very intently when we went to Glastonbury. I mean, for the whole preach, we were there for, I think, two hours or thereabouts, which unfortunately you don't see on camera. But take my word for it. People do listen. People are observing. They may not come over. A lot of Brits are quite reserved. A lot of Brits are also very polite. So don't think that because we're not having people lining up to ask questions or asking how to be saved that it was somehow a major disappointment. Absolutely not. We had many, many conversations. And like I say, over the next little while, such people's conversations and engagements with us will be seen by everybody. But the fear of Paul is quite simply this, that all of his work is going to be in vain he knew the corinthians they knew him he got the corinthians saved he built them up 
They knew that Paul wasn't in it for the money or the fame. He was a very simple man. He was a tent maker by trade. He was a scholar as a Jew. And yet he would say over in the book of the Philippians that he counted all things as dung. He knew that religion couldn't save anyone. So it must have been very painful, very painful indeed, to have to continually defend himself and also speak against, speak out against false teachers. Look at verse 5, please. For I suppose I was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostles. Very humble too. The Lord Jesus Christ would choose him 12 apostles and the 70, which gives you 82. Knock off Judas, that's 81. You think 81 men, seven continents. You think an average lifespan of 35 to 40 years. Easily. Those guys could easily have crisscrossed the globe a dozen times over, like each. And yet the Lord said, no, I want the Apostle Paul. And I'll wait till I go back into heaven. And for the first few years, you've got the Jews in and around Jerusalem preaching to the Jews. And the Lord says, I want you to go further afield. Go back to Babylon. Go back to Babel. Book of Genesis. They're all congregating in their own little communities. They all speak in the same language. It's all very cozy. Like the ecumenical movement today. And the Lord comes along and kicks them at the backside. And he says, get out. Go further afield. Don't hang around Mesopotamia. Go further afield. And he would do the same back in uh, the book of Acts. He would uh, allow persecution, famine, and other problems to come onto the scene to force the apostles out. And when it was pleasing to him, he would choose the apostle Paul, who says one more time, I suppose I was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostles, humble and also a tad of sarcasm. Six, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Rude meaning rough. Rude meaning uneducated. Rude meaning raw. It's probably fair to say that Paul said what he meant and meant what he said. It's fair to say that Paul didn't mince his words. It's fair to say that Paul was very much like Jesus. If you study Jesus very carefully, you know that when he met just everyday men and women, he was very gentle, very polite, deferential. And when he met religious people, he was very, can I suggest, raw, rough. He would uh, take a whip and go into the temple and drive such people out of the temple. When he spoke to the woman at the well, he was quite gentle with her. Although she had a colourful background, he was gentle with her. And of course that resulted in that woman getting saved. Other times in scripture, he calls someone like Herod a fox. He would say to Pilate that you have no authority over me. You have no power over me. You're nothing in the sight of the Lord. And yet the Lord has ordained the powers that be. The Lord allows powers to come and go. He allows kingdoms to come and go. And that's one of the reasons why the church are commanded to pray for such people. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. He would make the case from 1 Corinthians that he had great knowledge, complete knowledge. But we have been thoroughly, thoroughly made manifest, declared among you in all things. We are as about as transparent as we possibly could be. There's no deceit. There's no malignity. There's no pretending to be what he wasn't. If you saw Paul, you saw the real thing. Or if you saw Jesus Christ, you saw God. 
If you want to really understand Almighty God, study Jesus Christ. Read the four Gospels and you will have a great revelation indeed. Look at verse 7, please. Have I committed an offence in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Now, he's not literally saying he went out and stole. That wouldn't fit the character or the personality of the Apostle Paul. But he knows that there's a group in Corinth that are saying, like a whispering campaign, that Paul... Is keeping the money for himself and his cronies. Absolutely not. Verse 9. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren, which came from Macedonia, supplied. And in all things I have kept myself and being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. I have my own money. I have my own trade. I am, I'm not doing this for the money. Because, again, people thought that's what was motivating Paul. And many times, if you see people on television or on the radio or on the streets, many times they are doing it because it's their sole income. They need people to tithe. They need people to keep the money rolling in. If there was no money involved in organized religion, you wouldn't see them. One of the highlights for me in Bristol was to go to Bath. And during our time in Bath... I came across Bath Abbey. Never seen it before, and I guess it's over a thousand years old. And we approached it, many tourists outside. Some waiting to go in, some had just come out. And I just felt very grieved. And I thought, how hypocritical of such people. They would walk straight past us, would have no interest in the banner, little interest in our tracks, almost no interest in receiving a free DVD, and yet they will queue up to go into a so-called Christian building. And on top of that, they were paid to go in. And as I walked over, along with Patrick and our little group, I wanted to check that what I was about to preach against was so. And I moved my sunglasses, and I could see on this board inside uh, Bath Abbey a list of prices. £2 for children, £4 for adults, £10 for family. And I thought this is a throwback to our trip to Canterbury back in 2007. And back in 07, I also felt grieved and I preached outside Canterbury Cathedral. I rebuked them for charging money to go in to visit this very old cathedral. And here we are in Bath just a few days ago. And it's the same thing again. People are lining up to go in and pay money. And I started to preach against it. A guy came out, got in my face. Some of the buskers teamed up with him. And he got three guys against one preacher. And that's filmed. And we will post that probably next week. Organized religion, very similar to what the Lord Jesus Christ came up against. Like I just mentioned, he gets the whip out, John chapter 2. And drives them all out of his father's temple. And as we came across this abbey in Bath, it was the same kind of thing. People weren't happy to see us. People weren't happy to hear us preaching. And one of the brothers had our banner up high, which you can see. And one of the sisters was passing out tracks. I mean, talk about a team effort. But it's the same sort of thing. And no one said to themselves, let this guy have his say. This is still England. No, shut him down. He is this. He is that. He has no right to speak out against 
what we are doing. I've got every right to speak out against it. And if I was doing what they were doing, such people would have, you know, would have every right to speak out against me. But seven, eight, nine, Paul is defending himself. And also, latter part of verse 7, I have preached to you the gospel of God freely. There was no collection. There was no pastor plates around. There was no call to a silent collection. Paul would collect money, of course, to go back to Jerusalem, the mother church. And we spent five weeks looking at giving. Not tithing, giving. Giving because you can, giving giving because you want to. Not giving because you are mandated to. Not giving in order to receive a blessing. Not giving to avoid being cursed. Giving because there is a need. And giving because you want to give. Verse 9 speaks about Paul not being chargeable. He wasn't a burden. He wasn't being carried. They weren't carrying the Apostle Paul. It's fair to say that for a good part of his ministry, he was self-sufficient. Had his own trade. But by the end of Acts of the Apostles, his sight is almost leaving him. He's under house arrest. And it says that for around two years, he couldn't travel very far. People could visit him, but he wasn't really permitted to travel very far outside of Rome. And you can be sure of this, that the churches in and around Rome would have covered, would have, you know, would have covered his rent, would have covered his uh, food bills, his clothing allowance, or just to give him the very basic essentials. I mean, what sort of fellowship would such people be if they wouldn't take care of their beloved apostle? But money like driving a nice big car, money, like living in a private estate, money, like having your own private jet, would be completely foreign, and not to mention, totally offensive to the Apostle Paul. 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the reasons of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory they may be found even as we. So you've got a group of leaders in Corinth. At least one character, but he's probably got a clique. He's got a following. And it's like if you come across somebody who is successful, somebody who is really making a difference. Could be on a major scale or on a minor scale, but he's making a difference Within five minutes of such a person making a difference, the enemies of the cross, the agents of the devil, are going to lock onto such a person. And they will try and pull you down. Last Sunday, we finished our service, went into Bristol City Centre, got the banner up, and it had been a very busy week, a very successful week, and... For maybe 20 minutes, I felt somewhat buffeted. I'm holding the banner. Patrick's there. Our brother, a good friend uh, from Spain, is also not far away. One of the sisters is with us. And I can see people's facial expressions. And I can read, I can, I can read people pretty well. And I'm thinking to myself this. Number one, they don't like us being there, which is understandable. Number two, they'd like to come up and rip the banner down. Number three, they'd like to come up and physically assault us. Of course, there are some people who thanked us for being there. Don't misunderstand me. And some people uh, took tracks. Some people came back and took a few more tracks. But I'm looking at people's faces and I can see what they are thinking. 
And if I was perhaps a little smaller, they might have a crack at me. But they are looking at a guy who is a pretty decent size, pretty decent build. And they're weighing up the pros and cons. I know how people think. And they're saying to themselves, this guy looks like he can look after himself. This guy may fight back. Now, that's not what you should have to think when you're doing the Lord's work. We're not there to fight people. Last time we looked at chapter 10. Now, our, our uh, weapons are not carnal. We don't go onto the streets to fight physically. If people become violent, we walk away. You know, we don't get into a physical altercation. But I'm trying to weigh up people's demeanor, their demeanors. And I'm trying to think to myself, I'm thinking to myself this. Should we move a few yards? Should we stay put? I mean, the pressure starts to build. And the pressure to compromise or to move a few yards or even to take the banner down can build up very quickly. And you have to stand your ground if you are a brother doing this type of work. It's so easy to take the banner down. It's so easy to move a few yards away. It's so easy to switch the microphone off, the megaphone, and just cower. We won't do that. And we didn't do that. We stood our ground. And yes, there were some very hairy altercations, which, one more time, have been filmed and will be posted online. But the pressure, the pressure to do something, the pressure to take the banner down, the pressure to stop preaching, the pressure to use a less provocative banner is always there. And you say, but why use such a provocative banner? Because if we don't use a provocative banner, they won't come over to us. If we have a banner which says Jesus loves you, they will say we know that. Churches make that statement every day of the week. You have to get people's attention. I don't mean using offensive banners. I don't believe in using pictures of aborted babies. That doesn't sit well with me. We've never done that. I don't think you need to use crude language. I don't think you need to lower yourself to the standards of unsaved people. We don't do that. We have maybe four or five banners. Some are larger than others. And our main banner is from the Gospel of Luke. That's unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that caused a lot of conversations. And I'm glad that it did. Because if we hadn't used that banner and had a very bland banner, or perhaps no banner, the conversations would have been much less, if not non-existent. So Paul was in the front line. Paul was very much up against it. What Paul would experience from verses 24, 25, 26, 27, going into 28 and 29, would not most people on their backs today. I mean, most say people, most brothers that do any kind of ministry work would really struggle to bounce back from 24 or 25 or 26 or 27. And I'll speak about that in probably two weeks time. So allow me to wrap this message up for today and say a few things. Yes, there is a false church which offers preachers another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And I would suggest this, that such is what we are exposed to all of the time. I would suggest this, that in Britain in 2017... There is a tiny, tiny minority of true, born-again, Bible-believing Christians. People say that the LGBT community is a group to be reckoned with. But I'll say this to you. We are tinier than such a group. 0.1 of a percent. 
or point point one of a percent. The Bible believer in Britain is a minority of minorities. I mean, true born again King James Bible believing Christians, once saved, always saved, pre tribulation, pre millennial, no speaking in tongues for today, the literal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth for one thousand years, godly Israel resurrected to go into the new earth, and the church, the body of Christ, to go into New Jerusalem, saved by the blood without any works, and once you are saved, you are kept saved. Not many people preach that particular message. Most preach you can lose your salvation. Most preach you have to do something to get saved, like to be baptized. Most think you have to do something to stay saved. And I spoke to many people having to refute such heretical teachings. But corrupt minds is also a problem that Paul is up against. And it says over in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, how the devil has blinded the minds of those that don't believe. Going back to, you need to guard your mind. You need to also make sure your heart doesn't become any more darker than it already is. So look out for another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Because if you don't, you will fall foul. And also we have one old English word, abasing. Found in verse 7. And abasing simply means to behave in a way that belittles or degrades someone. You can't really imagine the Apostle Paul doing such a thing. And yet, I'll tell you something. Over in Galatians, he says that he wished the false teachers would be cut off. That term cut off means to be executed. Not just excommunicated, but executed. Going back to what he would say in Romans chapter 1. How the world, the wicked world, not only reject the Lord not only indulge in wickedness, but how they deserve to die. Physically, first death, and then spiritually, second death. But when it comes to Paul's views towards the saved, the people of the Lord, he had a great love, a real great love. He would pay a huge price for them. And that is also picked up from verse 28, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time. So we'll close it there in verse 12. And next week, God willing, pick it up from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a few thoughts to share with you all before we get to verse 13. And last time we read the first 12 verses and a threefold warning was given by the Apostle Paul from verse 4 concerning another Jesus another gospel, and another spirit. On top of that, another church, Revelation chapter 17. And I made the case last week concerning the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Christian scientists, the Seventh-day Adventists. On top of that, I mentioned Islam, Catholicism. But don't forget the Antichrist. The Apostle Paul has got the Antichrist in mind. The Lord Jesus Christ would say from the Gospel of John that you haven't received me, but if another should come in his name, him you will receive, concerning the Jewish Antichrist, of course. But the warning has been given concerning another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And therefore, an attack on faith alone presents a perverse and perverted gospel, resulting in a dangerous distortion. An attack on the scripture strips a saint 
of his or her security in the scripture resulting in one's shipwreck. And idolatry, another main problem concerning a false Jesus, another Jesus, results in a false and satanic worship, stealing the Savior's success on the cross. So there was a war going on, and for the most part it goes over the heads of many people. Many Christians are too busy doing church, praising the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Slain in the Spirit, listening to worship music. And if the truth be known, number one, couldn't spot another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Number two, are quite likely in another church, Revelation 17, Revelation 18. And if you were to attempt to explain such to those particular groups of people, they wouldn't want to hear it. Most people are quite happy doing their own thing. And it's like I said over the years that if something works for you, chances are you will stick with it. Just this past week, we were doing some street work in Bradford and a Muslim man came over to us and he took one of our tracks, stood right in front of me reading it, always slightly awkward to know what to do, looked at me and said, I'm a Muslim. And I said, okay then. And he said to me, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, well, give me what you've got to read. Let's do a swap. I'm pretty open-minded. And he said to me, well, my Quran is in my heart, very pious. And to cut maybe a five or six minute conversation short, I'll just say this, that he said to me this. He said, well, in mosque, we examine what you people believe, like Christians. We know all about what you people believe. And I thought this, that is the result of the evil ecumenical slash interfaith movement. Churches are so busy coming together with pagans, heathen, infidels, that they have completely failed to preach against false religions and to warn their members against false religions. And we had a bit of a quick chat, nothing too deep. And off you went, not before returning the track to me. But as I say, people for the most part are happy doing their own things, and most Christians are happy to do their own things. And most Christians couldn't spot another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And it's like the old expression goes, it comes in threes. Very true. Look at verse 13, please. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Again, a threefold warning. False apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. The latter is clearly a conniving counterfeit concerning the new birth. If you are born again, you are a new creature. If you are born again, you have been transformed. The thoughts of myself or Patrick standing in Bradford or Bath or Bristol or Glastonbury or Western Supermare or Manchester or Bolton or Wigan or Bury with a banner, with a megaphone, with tracks, in the heat of the summer, in the bitter cold of the winter, before we were saved, would have been a joke. But now we are saved, this is what we do. And that's why we like to encourage people that are born again to open their mouths. For such are false apostles. A false apostle for today would offer themselves as being able to, number one, do signs and miracles. Number two would be apostolic. And number three would be in receipt of ongoing revelations and if you get a chance check revelation chapter 2 verse 2 to 3 
to see what the Lord would say concerning false apostles. And an apostle, if you don't know, simply means somebody who was sent, somebody who saw the Lord Jesus Christ like an eyewitness. And if you meet people today that say they are apostles, and I've met a few over the years, they are liars. Nobody alive today, living on, living on any one of the seven continents on the face of the earth, has ever seen Jesus Christ, walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the terms for, or one of the titles for Muhammad is apostle, Allah's apostle. Again, it's a lie. There are no apostles. And here you've got a group, false apostles, deceitful workers. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 to 23, speaks about the great white throne judgment. And the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about those that arrive at such a place and he condemns them. And he speaks about those that were doing wonderful works. And here, deceitful workers, trusting in their works, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Clearly, this comes under demonology. I guess the highlight, or one of the highlights for us during our 10-day outreach in and around the Bristol area was to go to Glastonbury, a very dark place. And if you think about the Wicker Man, which came out in the 1970s, a very graphic film for the 1970s, you know what I'm speaking about. Many, many shops, magic spells, the cards, the crystals, this and that. And we saw several churches as we drove into Glastonbury. And I thought this, I wouldn't be surprised if such churches have gone native. They are now parts of the problem, not the solution. And they are caught up in this ecumenical interfaith movement. I mean, the body of Christ is in such a state today. And for around two hours, our tiny group walked around the streets of Glastonbury. Yes, out of season. And you may say, was it worth it? Absolutely. Many shopkeepers were listening to the preaching. Many shopkeepers were watching us, observing us. In fact, I'm told, even, even during the summertime, it's not a particularly busy place. You would have thought it would be packed. They have a music concert just outside of Glastonbury, city centre. That's where all of the revelers go. And yet one chap told our group that even in the summertime, it's not that particularly busy. Uh, I think Taunton is the nearest town to Glastonbury. That's where they all go. He told our group, but the shopkeepers saw and heard us. Tracks were given out, and I believe some DVDs were as well. But the thing is this, if we weren't there, who else is there? I looked on YouTube, and I wanted to see if anybody else had street preached in Glastonbury. Couldn't find anyone. Too busy doing religion. But verse 13, and yes, let me say this, if I may, 13, synonymous with evil, Synonymous with witchcraft, synonymous with the devil. Friday the 13th, 666, speaks about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. The Catholic Church believe that their priests are the successors of the apostles. And yet, when was the last time you saw a priest anywhere in the world doing miracles? I mean, supernatural miracles. I mean like feeding thousands, giving sight to the blind, walking on the water. My policy has been for the last few years that if people with such a view approach me on the street, I like to keep it brief. I don't like to get into long debates with such people. And yet at the same time, if you are on the street with a banner, 
preaching and people come over to you, you can't run away. You have to stand your ground. And I spoke about this last week during one of our Sunday trips to Bristol City Centre. The pressure was on, the intimidation was evident, and yet we stood our ground. And I think that for a good number of people, unsaved people, they wouldn't admit it, of course, but they have a sense of appreciation, a sense of respect to a street preacher who stands his ground. They won't congratulate you. They won't shake your hand. They won't commend you. Of course not. They're unsaved. And yet there's something about what you do that they can appreciate. Not sure I can really define it any better than that. Look at verse 14, please. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ spoke about being the light of the world. The Bible says, let there be light, and there was light. You've got many lights in Scripture. You have Christmas. You have the Feast of Hanukkah. Many lights. People like to see the lights. We're not far from Christmas. And around this time every year, the lights get switched on in London, in Blackpool, and other parts of the UK. And people, like thousands, will go to see the lights being switched on. People like to see the lights. There's something about light that interests people but here satan the devil is transformed into an angel of light so it's like i said over the years if you think of that uh expression or the uh, verse from matthew chapter 7 when the lord said that you would know them by their fruits concerning false teachers false prophets and most christians believe they have great discernment and yet if it was as simple as that Why didn't the apostles spot Judas? They had no idea which one of their own would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it says that they were looking at each other. Is it I? Is it him? Is it this person or that person? They had no idea. And of course, the traitor was right under their noses. So I'll say this, that if Satan was to appear in your church, you wouldn't recognize him. If Satan was to appear in your fellowship, you wouldn't recognize him. If Satan was to appear in your community of believers, you wouldn't recognize him. This is why you need to have a good prayer life, know the scriptures, and walk closely with the Savior. Far too many people are trusting in their experiences. We met a group in Bristol, three chaps that were speaking to our family from Barcelona, and they said this, that we are now over the moon that all of the denominations are no longer pushing their systems the term boring was used and now we are all coming together catholics and protestants it's wonderful news and i didn't get involved with this conversation although i was able to hear bits of it and our good sister from barcelona said well the pope made a statement last week that's a personal relationship outside of quote mother church is dangerous is false and that took me back to the statement that john paul ii would make that christians born again christians are rapturous wolves how about that and yet this group in bristol three gentlemen charismatic slash pentecostal may i suggest didn't know what to do with that statement concerning the current pope couldn't really digest it couldn't really deal with it And therefore they bypassed it. 
They're following an experience. They're being led by a different spirit. They have perhaps believed on another Jesus, verse 4. And they are certainly in another church, Revelation 17 and 18. In fact, Revelation 17 and 18 isn't just aimed at the Roman Catholic Church. It's aimed at her daughters, daughters of the whore, children of the whore. Babylon the Great isn't just one church. It's a group of churches that have been amalgamated into the church with the Pope very much in the driving seat. 15. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as a minister of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Feeding back to Second Peter chapter 2, I think it is. They make merchandise of you. They deny the Lord God that bought them and will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Jude also picks this up. Wandering uh, souls, twice dead, so on and so forth. So 13 speaks about false apostles, deceitful workers, which are able to transform themselves into the apostles of Christ. Going back to the group in Corinth that were going around undermining Paul, Satan himself is able to also transform himself into an angel of light. And if all that wasn't bad enough, 15 again. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, lieutenants, also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So if you were to tune in to a typical religious channel or a typical religious radio station and go up and down the dial or come across somebody preaching about Jesus, God, the Bible, if they were to offer themselves, say like Todd Bentley or like, say, Joyce Mayer or even Hal Lindsey to some extent, you could see straight through such a person. But if they were to appear, say like James White or John MacArthur or perhaps Jacob Prash, you may say to yourself, that's the real deal. And even that isn't as simple as you may think. Satan won't come to you as a dirty type of a person. Satan won't come to you with horns, a pitchfork. He will come to you as an angel of light. He will claim to have powers, and of course he has. But above all, he will come to you, along with his ministers, as servants, apostles, messengers of righteousness. They will preach about holiness. They will preach about godliness. They will preach about reverence and take in a lot of people. And as a result, their works will destroy them. Going back to Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Take the demonology out of this for a moment and apply it to someone today who perhaps has been innocently caught up in this movement. The reason why people go to hell, ultimately, is because they won't receive Christ's forgiveness. They won't be born again. They won't repent. They won't call upon the name of the Lord. That's why people perish ultimately. We had a guy come up to us in uh, Bristol week before last, and he said he was a Hebrew, or he was of that persuasion. Of course, he wasn't. He was a Gentile, but he offered himself 
as a Hebrew. And we had a conversation with this man, which was filmed and it's now online. And in essence, what he was saying was this, that love fulfills the law, which, okay, fair enough. But until you are born again, you can love God, you can love your neighbor, you can love him or her. Until you're born again, that love is irrelevant. Until you're being transformed, like born again, regenerated, your love means nothing. And that, I think, is lost on many people. And the problem with what this chap was teaching was he was bypassing grace. He was bypassing the new birth. He was trying to, if you will, put the cart before the horse, which, of course, doesn't work. And that's why I spent some time trying to probe the question. Ask him, are you born again? Never mind Jeremiah 31. Never mind love is this or love is that. How about holy, holy, holy? We'll go back to our scripture from the Gospel of Luke. Except you repent, you should all likewise perish. Too many people pick and choose what they want, and they build their doctrines on what they want, and they bypass many other verses. And sometimes, if you do street work, it's very difficult. It's like we said before. You never know who's going to come around that corner. You never know what they're going to say. And 90% of what you see on camera is quick thinking. You're having to think on your feet. You can't run away. You can't say, please don't be nasty to me. Please don't insult me. Please don't be cruel. You must stand your ground. And yet I believe this, that a good number of Christians are offended by the gospel. It goes back to the uh, 2012 presidential debate in America. You had Romney against Obama. And Romney's belief system was brought out into the spectrum. And he was very embarrassed by it. You could tell he was. Didn't want to discuss it. Didn't want to get into what the Mormons believe. And he was ridiculed for his beliefs. And yet I thought this at the time. Why not talk about Freemasonry? It's very easy to zoom in on a false religion like the Mormon religion. Make fun of it. And of course the media did. Not all, but some of them. And the... Uh, comedians the satirists made fun of his belief system and yet they wouldn't make fun of freemasonry every american president excluding jfk has been a freemason why not speak about that why not speak about freemasons rolling up their trouser legs or the trouser leg having their shirt ripped open having a noose put around their neck why not speak about that why not ask presidents like clinton bush one and two and perhaps Obama, such questions like, did you really do that? You didn't really do that, did you? Surely not. You're a very intelligent man. You went to Yale and Harvard. Of course they don't. But my point is this. Christians on the streets of Britain, I think many times don't like to hear street preachers preaching. It makes them feel uncomfortable. Why? Well, because they're lukewarm. They're carnal. They're backsliders. So what will they do? They will attack you. Many times online, they will leave unhelpful comments and they will side with the world how about that they will side with unsaved people look at verse 16 please i say again let no man think me a fool if otherwise yet as a fool receive me that i may boast myself a little answer not a fool according to his folly never answer fool according to his folly never Dance in the dark, if you will, if you 
come into contact with somebody who's unsaved, don't do so on their turf, their patch or their uh, ground, if you will. Do it via the scripture. If you go onto the streets, if you speak to people, and if you do so on their terms, you won't last five minutes. You have to take the higher ground. And that's why when I street preach, many times people come over to me and they start to shout in my ear. They start to snipe. They start to attempt to distract me. And people say, but James, just stop preaching and speak to those people. Listen, there are other people that are present that can take their questions. If I stop preaching, what has that achieved? If I stop preaching, that person who's come over to me has succeeded. If it's so important, it will wait until I finished. We had one uh, instance in Bristol, which hasn't yet gone online. A drunk Muslim came over to me as I was preaching, came very near to me, and he was trying to shut down the preaching. And I said to myself this, I won't stop. I will keep preaching. If it's important, he will come back later. And eventually Patrick came over, got between him and I, took him a few yards away, had a chat, and nothing came of it. The guy was just wanting to shut down the preaching. But Christians many times are easily grieved, easily offended. That James, he doesn't show much love, or he's walking around with a megaphone, or he's not dialoguing with people. Don't worry, I dialogue with people. I speak to people. I also street preach. But here Paul is dealing with the Corinthians. Here Paul is dealing with those that are sniping. He's dealing with the armchair critics. He's dealing with a group of people in Corinth who have really betrayed him. And that's the worst sin, I think, that somebody who is saved can experience themselves. Betrayal, like a stab in the back. You think you know someone? You walk with that person or people, persons, for a while, only to be stabbed in the back. It's very painful. And here Paul is being stabbed in the back time after time. He's got the Corinthians saved, and I mean really saved. And within five minutes, as we can testify at this ministry, false brethren have come along and they are seeking to rip up what you've done, undo what you've done, and get people to follow them instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get emails on a regular basis, people saying, can you recommend a church? And we always say, no, we can't and we won't. We preach Christ crucified. We preach that the blood of Christ saves sinners. That's what Paul preached. We preach that once you are in Christ, you are never going to come out of Christ. Romans chapter 8. We preach that salvation is a free gift. That's what the apostle Paul preached. But unfortunately, there were Judaizers. There were legalists going around saying, but what about the law, Paul? What about circumcision, Paul? What about the Torah, Paul? What about this? What about that? And Paul would say, such people, Galatians chapter 5, should be cut off. That's heavy stuff. He's saying such people making such statements should be cut off. And like I said last Sunday, that can mean excommunication and also execution. I say again, verse 16, one more time. Let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool, receive me, that I may boast myself a little. We become fools for Christ's sake. Like I say, we were in uh, Bradford a few days ago, a very 
cold parts of the UK, a very high parts of the UK, and within five minutes of arriving, we spread out and did some street preaching, which has been filmed, and you'll see it in a few weeks' time. And I can tell you that I felt like a fool for Christ. People watching me, uh, people trying to survey what I was doing, asking themselves, who is this imbecile? Who is this moron? Who is this fool preaching through a megaphone? And yet I know that a good number of people have got saved as a result of street preaching. We met a lady last year who told us this. She said that she had been in San Francisco and she was walking down the street, saw a street preacher, heard this street preacher, and whatever he said completely ripped her up, tore to pieces, and she ran back to her hotel room, got on her knees, and was saved. Thanks to a street preacher somewhere in San Francisco. It does work, but you've got to put yourself out. And also, you've got to have thick skin. Paul had thick skin. And yet here, in some ways, he's, he's having to lower himself to the Maya. And yes, Paul would be sarcastic as well. People think that if a Christian is sarcastic, that such isn't a Christian. No, Paul was sarcastic on many, uh, on many occasions. In fact, just last night, I was watching a video online uh, put up by a well-known uh, body language expert in America. And I watched many of this person's videos. Very good. And she was asked to do a video on a couple of American um, Christian leaders. I shan't name them. And I watched this four-minute video, and it was embarrassing to watch, I must admit. Two household names posting videos in response to one another's ministries. Very juvenile. And she was laughing as she was reviewing this very short video. But she made one comment which showed her ignorance. She said this, that sarcasm isn't Christian. Or to be sarcastic isn't Christian nature. She was incorrect, of course. You can be sarcastic. Paul would be sarcastic. Jesus Christ would be sarcastic. God the Father, many times in the Old Testament, was sarcastic. And this woman offers herself as a Christian. She's not, of course. But nevertheless, to watch her put this video up, reviewing body language of these two individuals, uh, was very interesting indeed. 17. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. Absolutely. Paul was very difficult to knock down. His credentials were remarkable. He was known throughout Jerusalem. So it's very difficult today, and it would have been very difficult then, to critique, to shut down Paul. But again, he was a saved Jew, born-again Jew. He got Gentiles saved. He got Jews saved. That caused a lot of jealousy from his own peers and a lot of resentments from the uh, Gentile world. On one occasion, back in Acts, he came across a girl who was demon-possessed, and it says after several days, Paul just snapped. And he cast this spirit out of this young girl, and that spirit came out. You try that today. If you offer yourself as an apostle, if you offer yourself as being able to do something supernatural, how about heading off to your local hospital or go down to your local children's ward? In the UK, we have the National Health Service and around this time every year, it 
is gearing up for winter. And I believe it's one of the largest employers in the world. Like half a million people, it costs the government billions of pounds. I mean, billions and billions of pounds. It's stretched. It's understaffed. It's overworked. Can I suggest this to our charismatic friends, our apostles, our disciples, those that offer themselves as apostolic? Can I suggest this, that you head down to your local hospitals, take a camera with you or tip the media off like the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph or the Guardian, any uh, newspaper that comes to mind, tip them off and tell them that you are heading down to this hospital or that hospital and that you will just clear out all of the beds and doctors will be pensioned off, nurses will be pensioned off, no need to visit your GP anymore because Mr. Fixit has arrived in town. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. Of course, they won't do that, will they? I've watched these people over the years. I've watched them watching us. <laughs> and they see the banner going up. They hear the preaching. They come over. They'll challenge you. They'll challenge us. But they won't challenge the world. They won't say to an unsaved man or woman, you're going to burn. You're going to perish. But they come over to us and attempt to clip our wings, attempt to help us out. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, verse 18, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. So wise. They were being swept up in the hypocrisy, the frenzy of this group going around saying that Paul was a faker, a phony, a charlatan. They couldn't see through such people. And yet they knew that Paul wasn't. They were saved. This goes back to what you hear, what you see. It's like this. It could just be that the Corinthians had received, and I mean saved people now, saved people had received indirectly, of course, another Jesus, another spirit and another gospel and as a result had become shipwrecked i mean if you are born again if you are saved and you know that you're saved and you know that you are born again and yet somehow in a way that is difficult to really comprehend you have abandoned what you know to be so and you have received this demonic threefold message philosophy, ideology, call it what you will, it will just ruin you. And I think if the truth be known, most Brits, most people in Britain that offer themselves as being saved have probably had this type of a problem, are perhaps in bondage to this type of a problem. And this is why Paul is struggling to try and release the Corinthians from this grip that Satan has on the church and has been able to do so via false leaders. So I'll close it there in verse 19. Just spend a few moments, if I may, adding some additional footnotes and thoughts to this very powerful piece of scripture and say a few more things, if I may, that what Paul was experiencing back in the first century, we are experiencing today. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, none of which can save and this may explain 
one of the reasons why thousands of priests from the Church of England went over to the Church of Rome back in the 1990s. It wasn't just due to a financial package, a very nice, very uh, lucrative financial package, but it was also down primarily to being seduced by another spirit and becoming traitors in the process. Satan is a great counterfeit to the Saviour. His ministers are great counterfeits to the true ministers of the Lord. If you speak to people on the streets, many times Christians will speak a lot about the Holy Spirit. And they will say that they've been baptized by the Holy Ghost, that they speak in tongues, that they do this and they do that. And if the truth be, you know, the truth be said, if the truth be known, many times those people have also fallen foul to a deceptive spirit. Some also believe that when a person is saved, they can be demon-possessed. I don't believe that. But some believe that. Some well-known people believe that. And they say that just because you are born again, sanctified, justified, secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't mean you can't be demon-possessed and just ruined by another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel resulting in you joining another church. I don't go for that. I understand the thinking behind such a view, but I don't think that's technically biblical, meaning I don't think if you are indwelt by the triune God, that somehow the devil can also squeeze his way in there, or an unclean spirit. You can be buffeted, you can be tossed to and fro, but ultimately I think the battle is against your mind not your body, because your body uh, belongs to the Lord. You've been bought with a price. Paul will answer a fool according to his folly. He has to deal with this head on. He could have just bypassed it. He could have just ignored it, but he won't. He will deal with it because he was an apostle. And around this time, most of the New Testament hadn't yet been written. Today, we wouldn't waste five minutes. We would go to the scripture and the scripture is referred to as a sword of the Lord. And we would deal with such people via the scripture. But for Paul, he's still receiving ongoing progressive revelations. And therefore he has to be quite brutal. Quite brutal because he knows that they, uh, this crowd are out for blood. They want to destroy Paul. They want to destroy the church in Corinth and Galatia. The entire churches, around the, you know, all of the churches in the first century and vicariously today. And that's why he would put a curse and I mean a curse, on anyone, Galatians chapter 1, or anything, Galatians chapter 1, or anyone, anywhere, any time that would preach against faith alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's why Paul, as I say, would put a curse on such people because they were playing with fire. The souls of the saints were at stake. And if you are a Bible believer, if you are a Bible preacher, you have a great pain you have a great agony you have a great burden to get people saved and once they are saved to protect them and to keep them safe and that comes to the new birth and that comes to faith in the scripture alone and i'll close it there and pick it up next week lord willing please open your bibles to second corinthians chapter 11 second corinthians chapter 11 and last week i seem to recall we ended in verse 19 and i want to read it again if i may 
For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. So the Corinthians were deceived, and the worst thing about deception is that nine times out of ten, you don't know that you are deceived. This crowd got saved, they knew that Paul was the real deal, and yet within five minutes of being saved, within five minutes of going of going from knowing of the Lord to knowing the Lord personally, you've got a group of reprobates, a group of apostates, a group of heretics coming alongside them, no doubt from within the church, although well, it's quite possible they were outside of the church, undermining the Apostle Paul. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ was up against time after time. You call yourself the Son of God, and yet you break the Sabbath. You call yourself the Son of God, and yet you say you and the Father, you and the Father are one. You say you are the Son of God, and yet you are hanging around with sinners, reprobate people. Nothing new under the sun. It's very easy to be self-righteous. It's very easy to offer yourself as being legalistic, and yet close the door, go back to your homes, your properties, and nine times out of ten, what you offer yourself as being, you're not actually uh, living up to it. You are a hypocrite. Going back to verse 15, where it speaks about the devil's messengers, ministers, being preachers of righteousness, which is quite astounding. You would have thought, surely, that the devil's lieutenants would preach depravity, preach this, preach that, like the Church of England, uh, be very much in favor of same-sex marriage, perhaps, or this or that, uh, offer themselves as being apostolic, like the Catholic Church, and those of us which are saved could see straight through it. But that's not how they appear. They will appear as preachers of righteousness. They will perhaps stand on street corners. They will perhaps stand in pulpits. They will perhaps go from country to country, preaching a pretty hard message. And yet, if the truth be known, they don't believe it, they don't practice it. And that's the worst type of deception. Look at verse 20, please. For ye suffer, if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. You are put up with someone who brings you into bondage. Go back to Galatians. You've got a crowd there that were saved. And I mean really saved. They weren't just doing religion. They were saved and they thought this, that well now that we are saved, let's really, pre, uh, let's really uh, please the Lord. Let's really please the Lord. Let's become Jewish. Let's keep the feast days. Let's be careful what we eat. Let's start to circumcise our sons. Let's start to keep the Sabbath. And that's what got under the skin of the Apostle Paul. And he would say that if you could be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. And here you've got a similar type of thing happening. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, like the leaders were doing to the Corinthians, like go back under the law, like you're not saved by grace through faith alone. You've got to go to church. You've got to start tithing. You've got to produce fruits, like the Lordship Salvation people preach today. If a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. And I think of the Catholics. I think of the Opus Dei movement. I think of kings back in the Middle Ages that would fall foul of Rome. And one king fell foul of Rome. And he was told to present himself to the Vatican, which he did. And he was told to walk the last two miles on his knees, which he did. Absolutely in terror of the Pope terror of the papacy because in his mind he thought that the church the catholic church that is would excommunicate him it meant hellfire now today you've got muslims 
rolling up to the Vatican. You've got Jews rolling up to the Vatican. You've got Freemasons, atheists, Hindu Sikhs, who knows what else, rolling up to the Vatican. It's one big party. It's one big get-together. You won't hear this Pope or the last five Popes preach about hell, preach about repentance, preach about the new birth, and yet go back just 500 years. The power that the papacy had over their people was just immense. But here, Paul speaks about being brought into bondage, being devoured, and also being smited, attacked, slapped, punched on the face. Now, some commentators suggest he's being not just sarcastic, but he's using extreme language. But I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It may have been that there were leaders that were attacking Paul. We spent the last, I think, eight weeks discussing such people that were very violent. I mean, if you study the cults, if you study people like Jim Jones or other infamous tyrants over the past 35, 40 years, very violent. Whippings, beatings, strangulations. I mean, just really violent, incredibly violent. And like I say, if you go to, or if you go to Catholic countries like the Philippines, especially around Easter time, you see grown men not just being whipped, not just on their hands and knees, I mean, crawling around on the ground, but you see grown men nailed to crosses. Absolute barbaric violence, graphic. And you say, what's it all about? Well, you've got there a picture of reprobates, a picture of those that don't really believe in the scripture, a picture of those that are trying to save themselves. They don't believe that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, so they are wanting to offer themselves as junior partners in the atonement. 21. I speak as concern and reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Going back to verse 1, bear me a little in my folly. Verse 2, jealous over you with godly jealousy, that I present you a chaste version to Christ. Verse 3, but I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Never answer fool according to his folly. From the Proverbs, of course, and yet Paul is doing just that. I speak, 21, as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, like spiritually weak, like double-minded, like almost being accused of being a hypocrite. Howbeit, whereinsoever, any is bold. I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Now you say to yourself this, you may ask yourself this, or you may beg the question, why would the Apostle Paul spend five minutes addressing such imbeciles, such uh, critics of his ministry? Well, because like I've been saying over the last several weeks, what else could he do? I mean, sometimes you will need to, you know, you will need to take a stand. Sometimes, if you, you know, if you have any kind of a ministry, you will have to open your mouth and deal with the critics, the scoffers. For today, we do so through the scripture. But when Paul was dealing with this incident, there wasn't the New Testament. It wasn't completed. You may have had the Epistle of James. You may have had perhaps First Corinthians. I doubt you would have had the four Gospels, although one uh, past uh, theologian suggested that Matthew was written 39 A.D., so that's three books out of, what, 26, 27? It's not even half of the New Testament. Look at verse 22, very interesting. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. 
Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So it could just be that this group going around were Judaizers, and therefore this would explain why it was so painful for Paul. Number one, it's quite possible that he had trained alongside such people. Number two, because they are his people, his beloved people, he's having to, in some ways, fight his own brother, like Cain and Abel, but in a spiritual sense. And number three, if they were Jews, and verse 22 would suggest that they were, he knew that he had to deal sharply with such people. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He's saying that as far as he is concerned, he is in the same camp as they are. They are in the same camp as him, and yet diametrically opposed, nothing in common, enemies of the truth be known, because for these people, they hated the idea of Christ crucified. They hated the idea that the atonement was dealt with by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at the Catholic Church today, they keep two billion people or thereabouts in bondage to a system And such people are terrified, petrified of falling foul of their church. And they may not go to church very often. They may go once a year. They may go once every other year. They may go once every 10 years. But a good number of those Catholics will remain faithful, quote unquote, to their church because they fear being cast off. Uh, 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. So he's saying that as the apostle, he was chosen for service, Acts chapter 9. He was told that he would suffer, I mean really suffer. Contrast that to this group of self-appointed Jewish, quote-unquote, apostolic preachers, living in luxury, never doing any kind of street work, waiting for people to get saved and then pounce on them and say, what church do you go to? Here's a good church for you. Come along and tithe. We are the real deal. I mean, that's how it works. I've seen this for years now, and I've seen these people, and I've spoken to these people on the streets of the UK, and they wait, and they pounce on new believers. Every so often, they may come over to people such as ourselves and discuss the deeper things of scripture with us, but what they really want is new people, new believers people that don't know much about the bible it's a lot easier to control such people are they ministers of christ i speak as a fool i am more there's a word again fool are you a fool for christ's sake are you a fool for the lord could you stand in a street corner could you preach could you pass out tracks could you go door to door could you would you take a stand in your workplace alongside your unsaved work colleagues in labors more abundant It's very difficult to look at the Apostle Paul and criticize him. He wrote 13, perhaps 14 epistles. And I worked this out some years ago. I think it's uh, 1.1% over 40 years or turn it around. 40 years of preaching. Over 40 years of preaching. Well, let's give him 30 years. Over 30 years of preaching. That works out to be roughly one book a year. Maths may be slightly out, but... It's tiny. I mean, it's just minute. Most of Paul's work, most of his ministry was traveling, not writing. And yet you can be sure that this crowd 
were very uh, well known for writing big theological textbooks, which nobody really understands anyway, copyright such books and make a lot of money from the sale of, of such books. In stripes above measure, whipped in prisons more frequent, in death soft. So it does intrigue me when I look back through church history and I see many men uh, that do street work, that go from A to B, and yet when I do so, for the most part, I can only think of maybe half a dozen people. I mean from Britain, that would suffer for the Lord. People like Bunyan. He was jailed for, was it nine years? Ten years? Eleven years? He was banned from street preaching. His bishop said, uh, no license, no preaching. And Bunyan said, well, I'm going to preach anyway. And he would preach. And he paid a huge price for that. His family, he had several children, suffered a huge price for that. And some people say, well, maybe he shouldn't have preached. He was married with children. Well, that's another discussion for another day. But nevertheless, he preached. And yes, he was a Calvinist, unfortunately. But he street preached. And as a result, spent years on and off in jail. People like Wesley dragged around the streets of Wigan by the heels, beaten, bruised, left for dead on many occasions. And other greats, the leader of the Salvation Army, would go into pubs and clubs, preach to such people, would have eggs thrown at him. The women would be physically assaulted and they'd have to retreat, get out quick smarts. Knocked out, of course, and they lived a very particular way of life. Of course, in the later years, compromise would come along, as it would with uh, Billy Sunday and other people. This seems to be a, a theme throughout the church. When you become uh, popular, when you become wealthy, when you become established, quote-unquote, compromises set in. That's kind of part and parcel, I would imagine, of leading a huge ministry or having a lot of... Uh, well-to-do people hanging on. And of course, that goes back to the judgment seat of Christ. That's why there's going to be a judgment seat. Because saved people, let's be honest, saved people still have an old nature. Saved people still sin. They shouldn't sin, but they still sin. And I was able to, during our time in Bristol, record a study uh, entitled, Why Do I Still Sin? And that runs to around two and a half hours. And that'll be uploaded probably next month. But here Paul wants the Corinthians to really understand what it was like for the Apostle Paul, a true man of God, a very humble man of God, a man who picked up his cross every day, denied himself every day, and as a result would suffer terribly. Contrast that to the Judaizers, this Lordship Salvation crew, people today, that preach such a message, going back to verses 13, 14 and 15. And living like kings, living in palaces, living very comfortable lives, and yet offering themselves as being very pious. And that's what the Lord would speak about from Matthew chapter 6, concerning the Pharisees. Standing on street corners, pretending to fast, looking very pious. And he would say they've had their reward. And of course, their reward was recognition. Unlike the Apostle Paul, who probably never opened his mouth once. 24. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. So the maximum amount a Jew could uh, be whipped for would be 40 uh, lashes, and 40 lashes would kill most people. So to avoid killing anyone, to avoid humiliating anyone, it was normally deemed that 30, 35, no more, 
than 39 would be enough. The Lord Jesus Christ would be whipped. And if you look at the Middle East today, there are parts of the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia especially, that still do this. There was a chap, I think, a month before last, a Muslim chap who fell foul to Riyadh, was punished. And his wife, I seem to recall, lives in America. And she was trying to get uh, quite a lot of people involved to uh, put pressure on Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, not to uh, put husband uh, through the mill, not to uh, publicly humiliate him, not to whip him. And they did it, nevertheless. They whipped him. And he's still in jail now. Uh, there have been awful atrocities uh, spoken of uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia. People have been whipped. Some have even died as a result of a public flogging. But here, the Jews five times would take the Apostle Paul and whip him. That must have been humiliating for him. It was bad enough that he couldn't get him saved. But on top of that, they would take Paul and just whip him. And it makes you ask the question, or it makes me ask the question, why far too many people today are just cruising through life? I mean, saved people just rubbing along with the world. Over the last 10 days, we've been able to visit Bradford, Preston, Liverpool, and we went to Preston a few days ago. We haven't been there for probably 12 years. And the last time we were there, uh, to our surprise, we came across a group of brethren, men from the Brethren Assembly, historically very conservative, historically theologically sound. Today, for the most part, they've fallen away. You don't really see much or hear much from them. But to our surprise, as we arrived in Preston, there were three gentlemen on the streets in Preston. One was preaching and two others were giving out tracts and... As I was walking past this group of three men, I didn't want to speak to the preacher. You never speak to a preacher when he's preaching. So I went over to one of the uh, gentlemen, I'd say 80 plus, And I said, praise the Lord. Good to see you here, brother. And we did a swap of tracks. And I said to him, uh, we're going to be preaching just a few yards down the road. We shan't you know, preach over you guys because the guy didn't have a PA system. And I did. And he smiled and said, no problem. And we got the banner up, and they were just packing up anyway. And I started to street preach. And this elderly gentleman walked down, stood for maybe 10 seconds, listened to the preaching, smiled, gave me a wave, and off he went. That was good. I appreciated that. That was good to see. Uh, but apart from that particular city, I can't think of many other cities where such people uh, street preach. And I can be sure of this, that they get some stick in Preston. The preacher wasn't particularly loud, but you knew what he was preaching about. He wasn't preaching about carpets. He wasn't preaching about pizzas. He wasn't preaching about a taxi service. He was preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that were standing near enough to him would have known that's what he was there to preach about. And I am pretty sure that he has suffered abuse like we do when we go into the streets. But here I'm looking at a group of Hebrews 22. I'm looking at Paul calling himself a fool, 23. I'm looking at the greatest Jew, the greatest saved Jew. Let me qualify that. That ever lived, 24, being Paul, of course, being whipped, being detained five times. And as a result, being whipped 39 times. I can't imagine the pain that must have caused the Apostle Paul. I mean, no wonder he took a doctor with him. 
No wonder Dr. Luke was always travelling with him. You can be sure of this, that after Paul's public flogging, he would have been just discarded, and Luke would have come along, maybe Timothy, carried him to somebody's home, and Dr. Luke would try and uh, deal with the wounds, the open scars, the bleeding from his back. Contrast that to today. How many street preachers experience a third of this? I was in Liverpool uh, two, three days ago. We haven't been to Liverpool in 12, 13 years. And after we arrived, we got the banner up. And I can tell you that within five seconds of arriving in Liverpool, the hostility was evident. A lot of people uh, shopping this past week has been half term in the UK. A lot of parents with children, grandparents with children on the streets. And I said to myself this, that if I don't start street preaching now, I may not street preach at all. Once the pressure starts to build on you, once the hostility really kicks in, it's so easy, you know, like I said before, to not open your mouth, not get the banner up. Well, praise the Lord, we got the banner up. And praise the Lord, we street preached. And for maybe 40 minutes, people were watching us, uh, observing us. And we had one particular chap, a very beefy chap. Uh, we call such people chuggers in the UK. And you say, what's a chugger? Well, a chugger is somebody who stands on a street corner trying to sell you something. Something which you don't really need. And they use a lot of charm to get your attention. And if you don't buy what they are offering, they can become very mean, very critical, very spiteful. And this chap was standing very near to where I was preaching maybe too near, and I could see him trying to make eye contact with me. And my policy has always been this, that once I start street preaching, I don't stop and start, I don't stop and uh, take questions. And you may say, why not, James? Well, because if I stop, I lose my train of thoughts. I lose my, my flow. There are other people that are standing around that can take the questions. And what you will see in a few weeks' time, when I upload the video from Liverpool, is why I don't stop preaching once I start preaching. This guy walked over towards me and he said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And I said to him, one moment, sir, I've almost finished preaching. As I finish preaching, I wrap everything up. He comes over to me and he says something which I can't quite recall. And he blasphemed. And he said to me, your preaching is bad for business. And I thought, well, that may be so, but you know, I'm not here to stop you making any kind of money. I'm here to preach the gospel. And he uttered something else, which you can get from the video when you watch it. You can hear on the video. But that proves my point. Why you never stop preaching when someone like him comes over to you. Because nine times out of ten, he wants to shut you down. He wants to silence you. If it's important, he will wait. If it's important, he will come back. I was also told by the sister who was very kindly filmed me that as I was preaching, there was this young girl, maybe 13, 14, with her grandparents, who was listening intently to my street preaching. I don't remember seeing her, but I was told that she was listening to the street preaching. And her grandparents walked 20 yards, 30 yards up the street, thought that she was with them, turned around and realized that she was listening to me. They doubled back walked towards and said, come on, let's go. And he said, why would they do that? Well, they don't want to have to answer her difficult questions. 
Like, why do people sin? In fact, what is sin, Grandma? What is sin, Grandpa? Why don't you go to church? Why don't you two ever read your Bibles at home? Difficult questions to answer. And they took their granddaughter's hand and frog-marched her away from the street preacher. Very typical. But I'll be honest and say this, that I don't really... I can't really relate to 24. I can't really relate to 23. I can't really relate to 21. And I don't think many others can. As I stand in this morning, I can think of maybe three street preachers in Britain that I know personally that have had altercations with people and police. And yet even those people don't come really anywhere near what Paul is speaking about from 24. But look at 25. Very interesting. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. you got eight perils from 26 alone. But 25 is very interesting. Thrice, three times, was I beaten with rods. To be beaten once would be painful. About three times. Once was I stoned. Something which they still do in Islamic countries today. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That's an interesting term. A night and a day I've been in the deep. And I thought this when I sat down maybe three weeks ago now, to prepare for chapter 11, that I just wonder if Paul experienced what Jonah experienced. I remember, I think it was last summer, we went to Speaker's Corner. We went twice last year. And it may have been the first time that we went, a group of Muslims came over, trying to mock the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they went to Matthew chapter 12, where the Lord speaks about three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, quoting the uh, Jonah account. And what I didn't say to such people was that when Jonah died, I think he did die, he went into the ground. And, of course, you know as a Bible believer that before Christ died on on the cross for the sins of the world, all of the dead, saved and unsaved, went into the ground. Nobody went straight to heaven. Perhaps Enoch, perhaps Elijah, but that's it. Nine times out of ten, saved and unsaved, went into the ground. And therefore, I think when Jonah died, and I believe he died, he went into paradise. He went into Hades. He went into hell itself. Now, there are two parts to hell, and I won't spend too much time talking about that this morning. But I think this, I just think it's quite possible that what Jonah experienced, Paul would experience. And I think there are several occasions... He's given you a few here from 23, 24, 25, where Paul died. At least one account of him dying. He went up to paradise, and that's found uh, in chapter 12, which we'll look at next Sunday. But it may be that he went down before he went up. And that's what I think this is all about. A night and a day I've been in the deep, Abraham's bosom, Luke chapter 16. In journeyings often, always traveling, not really writing, in perils of waters, feeding back to shipwreck, 
25. In perils of robbers. Interesting. In perils of robbers. If you speak to certain American Christians, they uh, are very keen to speak about arming themselves. And yes, we know that the American uh, Constitution allows for Americans to arm themselves. And they try and do so a lot of the times, or they try and justify a lot of the times uh, from Scripture. Christians say that the Lord spoke about uh, having a sword, it being enough from the, I think it's Gospel of Luke. But that sword from the Gospel of Luke wasn't in reference to killing someone. It wasn't in reference to self-defense either. It was more likely in reference to keeping wild animals at bay. Because had that been in reference to self-defense, Paul would have defended himself. He never did. He would have uh, attacked his enemies. He never did. He would turn the other cheek. So therefore, in perils of robbers, like highway robbery, had Paul been armed with a sword or a dagger of any kind, he would have waved it around, surely. But he doesn't. He wasn't armed. The question gets asked, well, were the Christians in the first century pacifists? Quite likely. As difficult as that is to think of, and there's so much violence in the world today, go back to the first century or read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. They suffered terribly for their faith. They weren't going around with guns or swords or daggers or weapons. They took the punishment. I mean, literally. And here Paul speaks about perils of robbers, imperils by mine own countrymen, fellow Jews, going back to... uh, Verse 22, going back to verse 24, going back to verse 25, feeding back also to verses 13, 14, and 15. You've got two groups of Jews. One group love Jesus, the other group hate Jesus. I was told that in Israel they have a law which says that if you proselytize somebody under the age of 18, it's illegal. Did you know that? If I was to go to Jerusalem today, or Tel Aviv today, or Haifa today, and stand on a street corner preaching, as I'm accustomed to do in the UK, and if a group of teenagers, 18 or under, were to be seen in my proximity, or if I was to speak to such people, I risk being arrested. Apparently it's illegal in Israel to proselytize witness to kids under 18. Well, just for the record... I don't do that in the UK. My policy has always been that if you are under 18 in the UK, I won't proselytize you. I won't speak to you about Jesus. I won't give you tracts. I know some people don't agree with that. But my experience has always been, or my experience has been for a long time, that if you're under 18, this isn't really for you. Or if you're under 18, speak to your parents about the Lord Jesus Christ. But as far as I know, it's not illegal in Britain. It's not illegal in America. It's not illegal in Canada. It's not illegal in Australia. It's not illegal in New Zealand. Not yet anyway to preach Jesus, to share Jesus with those under the age of 18. And yet shamefully, as I understand it, it is illegal in Israel in the 21st century to speak to Jews under the age of 18 about Jesus. In perils by the heathen. He's being attacked on two fronts. The Jews are attacking him. The Gentiles are attacking him. Imperils in the city. Imperils in the wilderness. He goes out into the wilderness to pray, to fast, to prepare himself. And 
He's under the cosh. He's on the run. He's really suffering for it. He's suffering the same in the city. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. Going back to 13, 14, 15. I mean, this guy was being buffeted 24-7. This man was really up against it. In a way that I don't really understand. In a way that I would suggest 99% of brothers in Britain don't really understand. 27 in in uh, in weariness and painfulness. His body was always aching. He wasn't only about to become blind. He wasn't only suffering with poor eyesight. His body was being whipped, beaten, starved. I mean, if you were to see the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't want to spend five minutes with him. In watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And yet, in spite of all that, wasn't bitter, wasn't resentful, wasn't angry, would be sarcastic concerning the uh, Judaizers, the enemies of the cross that were all over him like a rash, but never angry towards the Lord, never bitter towards God, never ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Weariness, painfulness, watchings often, hunger and thirst, fastings often, cold and nakedness. That's a true mark of an apostle. That's a true mark of a real man of God. And you try and find someone today who lives up to this. It's very difficult. 28. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So not only was he dealing with this crowd from uh, 24, 25, 26, and that would cripple most people. He's also dealing with the churches that were going through all sorts of problems, having to carry the weight of the churches. And this is what it comes back to. Fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with the brethren. I got a text very early this morning from a friend of the ministry who's going through a very painful divorce. And I got back to this friend of the ministry saying, we're praying for you. Hang in there. And this person is very upset, very distraught and has good reason to be, you know, of such, you know, persuasion to feel the way that they do. And yet this person wants to be reassured. This person wants to have others pray for them. And rightly so. And here Paul is, is uh, carrying the churches, the burdens, the problems that they were going through. On top of his own problems of street work, so on and so forth. 29. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. Burn in the sense of burning with indignation. Burning in the sense of godly jealousy. Going back to verse 2. 30. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. What a statement. He doesn't say, Father in heaven, burn up the Judaizers, burn up the carnal Corinthians, burn up the uh, false brethren, the heathen. Far from it. He wants to glory 30 in his infirmities. He wants to glory in his lack of eyesight. He wants to glory in the scars on his back. He wants to glory in the fact that he's often cold and naked, 27. He's often uh, hungry and thirsty, 27. That's what he wants to glory in. Remarkable. 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. That's what he was really interested in. He didn't care about the enemies of the cross, the Judaizers, the carnal Christians, the Gentiles scoffing, the Jews blaspheming the Lord. He knows that one day God will deal with such people. 
going back to the chap from uh, this past week in Liverpool, he wasn't an issue for me. Yes, he was quite intimidating to observe. A very tall man, a very heavy man, but he didn't bother me. I wasn't fearful. He was a nuisance, of course he was. He was very near to me, and he was trying to get me to stop preaching, and people were stopping to buy his material from him, and he was making fun of the preaching, but apart from that, it made no difference. 31, Paul knew that the Lord was on his side, and I knew that the Lord was on my side from this past week in uh, Liverpool. 32, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. Humiliating. Had you said to Paul a year before he was saved that one day he'd be preaching Jesus Christ to the Jews, to the Gentiles, he would have laughed in your face. Had you said to the Apostle Paul a year before he was saved that he would write 13, 14 books uh, from the New Testament, he would have laughed in your face. Had you said to the Apostle Paul a year before he was saved that one day he would have to escape in a basket down the wall to avoid being ripped to shreds. In Damascus, the governor, 32, under Aretas the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison. You got a group of Roman soldiers, pretty much dominating this part of Syria, desirous to apprehend me. Why? Because he was a threat to them. But most Christians today are no threat to anyone. As we drove out of Liverpool, we saw many churches, many churches, in their day, bastions in their day, very uh, impressive. And we saw Catholic churches, we saw Protestant churches, we saw some uh, Baptist churches. But the impressive churches, mainly Catholic and Protestants, are just museums now, dinosaurs. And I thought to myself this, in fact, Patrick and I were discussing it as we drove out. What are these churches doing? What are they offering to their society, to their fellow Liverpudlians. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. You can't imagine a priest or a vicar causing such a stir in Liverpool or Preston or Bradford that he'd have to be rescued or he'd have to escape via a wall. You can't imagine it, can you? Such people are very comfortable, parts of the system, are no doubt members of the Rotary Club, Freemasons, perhaps, rubbing along with the world. I thought, how depressing it is. We drove two hours to get to Liverpool. We preached, we gave out tracks, we got the banner up. I'm not saying that to brag. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm not saying that to puff myself up. I'm simply stating a fact that we, that we drove two hours to preach in Liverpool, and we drove about an hour and ten minutes to preach in Preston, and we drove an hour to get to Bradford, preached there, got the banner up, spoke to people, and yet I asked myself the question one more time, where are the true Christians? How often are they working the streets? Exclude the brethren that we saw in Preston, and praise the Lord for them. But anyway, 33 verses from Second Corinthians chapter 11, it's taken three weeks to faithfully read these verses but like I say when I look at these verses I see what a real man of God goes through whipped starved on the cusp of execution takes all in a stride he was very stoic 
never once complained, never once called on the Lord to devour his enemies. A great lesson for all of us today. I see the uh, text from 28 really standing out that what was really grieving him with the pain of his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. He knew he'd have to suffer as a result of having this ministry. And 30, another key verse. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. And that's what this is all about. This other stuff was kid's stuff. This other stuff was immaterial. This other stuff was temporary. Paul was in love with the Lord. He was in love with the scripture. And his love for the brethren would uh, get him through these difficult times. And I think we'll close it there. And next week pick it up, Lord willing, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12.